Okay, welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy, everybody. This is Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host this morning. And this morning we're going to be visiting with Kirsten Knudsen, who is an astronomer at the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy. <laughs> and she's joining us this morning, taking uh, some time off from her Green Bank telescope observations. So welcome, glad you could be with us. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. So first of all, Kirsten, Tell me about the kinds of objects that you're looking at with the Green Bank Telescope. What we're looking at are objects that are really far away. They are what we would say around red to four in human numbers. That more corresponds to uh, around 12 billion light years away. So they're pretty far away in the universe. They're towards, towards the beginning. So what we're looking at are quasars. Yes, tell us, tell us what quasars yeah, are. So, so quasars are very massive galaxies that in the very center of them is sitting this very supermassive black hole, which is, which is growing in size. And what is probably happening through that, um, the whole physics around it is that there is a lot of material sitting around it, which this black hole is eating up. It's accreting, it, it's accreting the matter. As it's eating all this matter, a lot of energy is being released. And so all this energy is what we can see really far away. And that also makes quasars some of the most luminous objects uh, in the universe. Now, the, the ones that we're looking at, quasars, what is particular to them is that they have a lot of dust in the galaxy that they're sitting in. And this is a sign that they're under, that a lot of stars are being formed in the galaxy around this supermassive black hole. Um, and so what we're looking at in these quasars is not just the dust, but we're also looking at molecules. And the molecules we're looking for in this case is carbon monoxide, CO, which is actually sort of ironically a very poisonous molecule to us, but is very abundant throughout the universe. And is that that's because this molecule is kind of simple? Yeah, it's very simple. It's, all it has is a carbon and an oxygen, and so it only has two atoms, and it's like... It's, it's limited how many like two atomic molecules you can actually make and that are so abundant in the universe. The most abundant one is, of course, uh, H2, uh, so that's two hydrogen atoms together. And so when you're measuring um, carbon monoxide, what you're using it for is not only to see how much there is of carbon monoxide, but it's, of course, closely related to what there are of other, other types of molecules in the universe, and in particular around the quasars because then you can use the carbon monoxide to see how much, for example, hydrogen is present. So if you see a lot of carbon monoxide, you can infer that there's a lot of Mole a lot of other stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of molecular gas. And molecular gas is very important for the formation of stars um, because what you need, when, when you have a big cloud of gas and it's being compressed and you can make stars out of it, you need when you compress it, it's becoming really hot and you need to get rid of all the energy that is in this heat. And so to one of the ways, um, so the molecules, one way or the other, act as a catalyst for getting rid of the heat, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and so the more molecules you have present together with the gas, basically the more efficient can you do your star formation. I see. So if you didn't have a way to get rid of the heat that's being formed as gas clouds are getting denser and compressing, would that just turn the cloud back into a, an expanding cloud instead of a compressing cloud? Yeah, that's basically what you'd think. Of course, you, there are many details into this, which I think is only, well, a lot of it is still not actually 
understood in the great detail, but most astronomers working in the field of star formation believed that one way or the other they understand some of the physics in that. And so, um, of course, there are all kinds of other things playing into this, such as magnetic fields. If you have to compress a cloud, you can have magnetic fields also as a way of getting rid of the heat. But like that, that's something that becomes computationally really complex to work with. Now, if you look at the very beginning of the universe, like just after Big Bang, we actually didn't have carbon, no oxygen, no nothing that's heavier than than helium, basically, well, except a little bit of lithium. But basically, all you have is hydrogen and helium. And there, of course, having to make a star where you have no molecules present where you can get, get rid of the heat, um, you need to make these stars really, really massive so that the gravitational contraction overcomes the, pre the outward pressure. Mm. And those stars are things that have not yet been observed, but there are many predictions for what they would look like if we just had a big enough telescope to see them. That's pretty cool. So early stars early on uh, had to form in a different way than stars nowadays, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Because they didn't have these heavier or these molecules around to help yes, help yes. the process along. Of so you're looking far back in in time essentially as you look back yes. um, to these galaxies. Are you expecting to see less carbon monoxide in galaxies? this far away than you would see in galaxies that are nearer to us? Yeah, that has been a big puzzle until very recently, whether or not you would expect to see um, molecules like this at very high, like very far away, high redshift, very far away. So at, at the type of distances that we're looking at, it's expected you'll see it, because the cycle in which you produce all this is, you need less than a billion years, you probably need even less than that, to produce the carbon and the oxygen and other elements and return it into the um, interstellar medium in which you can then reprocess it into stars. But it was actually found very recently in, by some of the people I'm working together with that quasars, there's a, four quasars known at a redshift beyond six, and that is actually at a time where the universe is less than a billion years old. And there, when they first applied to get telescope time to look for dust and to look for um, carbon monoxide, most people were actually thinking that was a crazy idea. But it turned out this was abundant. Like it, it was much more present. Like there was some such a larger quantity present than they had expected. And of course, that has had an impact on our on our understanding of how do galaxies um, form and and when does the process of star formation really take off? You need to start producing this straight away as soon as you get into the phase where the universe basically looks anything like we have it today. Wow. So you, ne you need to start producing stars immediately after the universe is formed. Now, the folks, and, and myself included, I get a little bit mixed up about this. When we're talking about red shifts, you're looking at the radio emission from carbon monoxide in these distant galaxies and you think they're distant because of their redshift. And you talk about a galaxy that has a, a Z of, of four or five. Is that going to be really difficult to explain or can you shed some light on that for us? Well, the redshift has to do with, as the universe is expanding, all the galaxies are moving, far, moving away from each other. And the further away they are, the further they're moving away from each other, so to speak, and the larger is the redshift. So what happens is the light that is being emitted will be basically stretched, so it will go from blue to red, because red is a longer wavelength. 
And the same thing will happen, of course, across from all the way, like at any wavelength. So in the radio, which is already a long wavelength, it would just become an even longer wavelength. So what we're utilizing is that we know what the redshift is. And so we know what carbon monoxide would look like if we looked at it here rather than really far away. And so we just have to make the correction that instead of looking at it here, we're looking at it shifted five times, basically. or by a factor of five and so it will come so we just have to make sure to tune or choose the right frequencies that we're looking at okay so if you had a jar of carbon monoxide in the laboratory here on earth and you caused it to emit light of some kind what would the wavelength of that light be so the very basic wavelength that we're looking at actually frequency would be um, about 115 gigahertz so that's a wavelength of two and a half millimeters uh, yeah. so a wavelength of about two and a half millimeters but because th- this galaxy is moving away from you due to the expansion of the universe that two and a half millimeter wavelength wave is being stretched yeah and so now we're looking at 22 gigahertz which is about a centimeter that sounds about right yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so the wavelength is longer then it's yes. one centimeter from wave to wave to wave and that makes it easier to use a telescope like the Green Bank Telescope to look at it. Yes, because the Green Bank Telescope is is designed to look at the radio wavelength uh, much better than looking at something that's a millimeter. Mm-hmm. And so it, the Green Bank Telescope is, is excellent for things like that's a centimeter or 10 centimeters long. Okay, very, very good. So a Z of 5 means that the wavelength is five times longer. I, I, is that I, what that means? Actually, if you have a Z of four, the wavelength is five times longer because okay. you have to add you gotta one. you got to have one more. Yeah. <laughs> and that means that you're looking at a universe that is five times... Smaller. Smaller. Five times smaller than... Okay, I'm going to get this straight one of these days. I see this Z, and if you Google Z, you get all kinds of things, but you don't get a lot of uh, information about, <laughs> <laughs> about redshift and what that means. Tell, the, tell us a little bit about where this carbon and this oxygen comes from in the first place. So the production of hev- what we call heavier elements, which actually is anything heavier than helium, and helium is the second, is the second element that has two protons, two neutrons. What happens that in, this, um, in the center of stars, which is basically big balls of gas, mostly hydrogen and some helium, um, there is a, a nuclear fusion is taking place, and so basically what you can do is you can take hydrogen and hydrogen together, build up helium. Helium you can again go through another fusion process and build up the next um, elements so that you can get up to building, I guess, beryllium, you can get carbon, you can get nitrogen, you can get oxygen, and so forth. And of course you go through a bigger part of the periodic system, and so slowly as the processes are going on you can get up to, I guess, and certain types of stars all the way up to producing iron, but you cannot produce any further than that. Those, any elements heavier than iron would have to be produced in other processes than just sitting in the stars. So carbon monoxide, which you're looking for in galaxies that are far, far away, the, the components of that came from stars going through their normal life. life. Yeah. And then th- these elements were released into the galaxy again when the star... Well, yeah, basically when the star dies, what happens is different types of stars will return their material to the to the interstellar medium again. Um, some go supernovae, that means like, um, and there are different types of supernovae. 
some explode and there'll be nothing left. Others will, you can also have the process in which the outer layers are being cast off, but there will still be a central core left back. So that could be a, like a neutron star, for example, um, that could possibly, depending on the t again, depending on the type of star, if it's very massive, it could be a little black hole that's left. Um, those black holes, of course, nothing compared to the supermassive black holes that we see in centers of galaxies. There are also the um, there are certain types of stars that only very slowly cast off their outer um, outer layers, and so from those are typically those are the ones that we'll see as planetary nebulae. So they have this very magnificent, very beautiful um, shapes. And is that that's what's going to happen to the sun? We're going to have a lovely yes. planetary nebula, perhaps, I, if we're lucky. I, yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> I would expect so, yeah. Like, at least the sun is very slowly going to expand out to being much bigger than... than like it, It's going to expand beyond the Earth orbit, basically. Well, by looking for uh, carbon monoxide in these distant galaxies, what are you hoping to to learn about either the galaxies or the universe back then? One of the things we want to study is, is of course, how do really massive galaxies um, form. And those are galaxies that are much heavier than our Milky Way. Like our own Milky Way is, is a fairly massive galaxy, but these are galaxies that are maybe 10 times bigger or more than that. And um, one of the questions is, of course, um, what, a, what is it that is needed to build up so much mass in such a little place? That's a, like a ga well, a galaxy is still fairly big, but... And one of the things that astronomers have found is that most galaxies, in particular the massive ones, they all have a massive, supermassive black hole in the center. And so, of course, you would expect that there is some relation between the formation of the black hole and the formation of the galaxy. And so through studying, for example, the carbon monoxide, together with studying the dust properties and so, we'll be able to say something about how the star formation took place in the host galaxy. Now, if we combine this together with the information we have about the quasars, the, so the actual center of the galaxy, those type of galaxies, um, then we can say something about the formation of the supermassive black hole. And then we know, or hopefully we'll be able to say something about how their common history has been. And so, of course, we do this not only looking at one given time in the universe, but we look throughout all the times, all the epochs in the universe, and then compare these data as well and see what happens. What are the hypotheses out there? How did these black holes, these super, super big black holes form in these galaxies? What do people think? Well, there are so different ways that you can view it. There's been, one of, one of the options is that you basically have a seed black hole from, which comes already from the Big Bang and where all the structures, where the seeds for all the structures in the universe have been put or sad, and then from there they would basically grow. Of course, they need not grow only for that particular galaxy. You can have this whole cluster of galaxies. All you have is this big concentration of mass. Now, no, that that's something that's really difficult to test. But one thing that often will happen is the formation of a lot of massive galaxies can, I'm not saying this will happen for all of them, but for a lot of them could happen through a merger of two galaxies. And so through this, you build up the mass, actually. And so if you have two galaxies that merge together, you'll, of course, have that um, as they collide, you'll create an enormous pressure on all the gas. And through that, you'll compress the gas and you'll start forming stars. You get a starburst. And th some of those starbursts can be incredibly big. And so... We're trying to get from that, from the formation of stars, that makes sense. Yeah. 
But how do you get a black hole in the middle of this galaxy yeah, then? So, so the one one option is that it it starts out as a seed. It could mm -hmm. could possibly be related to some of those enormous stars or clusters of stars that are forming the very first stars at all. As I said earlier, they have to be incredibly massive in order for the gravitational pull to be to be able to withstand the pre the outward pressure. And so if you have these stars being enormous, they could possibly make the seed for mm -hmm. the black hole. Because you can make a you can have a black hole left over after a stellar explosion, right? After a huge huge massive star yes. goes supernova, you could have a black hole left behind. Yeah. And if you had lots of those happening close together in the center of a galaxy, could they get together and make a bigger black hole? You would expect so. That, that's the kind of physics that's somewhat difficult to deal with. Um, I think that's probably more with the computers difficult to deal with, but uh, trying to make models for it. But if that, it, it's an option if you had a lot of these together. Nobody knows if these really massive, ga massive stars at the very earliest part of the universe, if those are one big star or if those are in fact a lot of smaller stars that are sitting together. Of course, they'll still have to be really, really big, but like 100 times the size of our own sun or more. And, and so if you would have a cluster of those, you would typically have something that could be, I don't know, a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand times the size of our own galaxy, or the size of our own sun. Wow. I'm glad we don't have such a star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we have the nice little medium-sized sun. Do your galaxies look like anything? Can they be seen by optical telescopes? Yeah, they're because they're so far away, they're really difficult to resolve. But um, you can if you have really good resolution, such as, um, I would say, they would be difficult to resolve with something like the Hubble Space Telescope. But I actually have a project trying to resolve the galaxies in the radio, in which I'm using the Very Large Baseline Array, so the VLBA in combination with Green Bank Telescope and the VLA, the Very Large Array out on Socorro. And also for one of the objects I'm looking at, we're also trying to use Arecibo, which is a 300-meter telescope and in You've Port got Riga. all the big big boys except for except for the telescope in uh, Effelsberg. Yeah. You need to drag that one yeah. in, too. Well, at some point, cause, because the further apart they are, so the bigger your baseline, that corresponds to you have a really big telescope. And the bigger your telescope, the better your resolution. Of course, if I was to include the one in Germany, I think the resolution would become too big in the first place. <laughs> it would be too good. Yeah, yeah. basically. But, but having, having ba basically, this would then be a telescope at the size of the continent of the US, like stretching out from Hawaii down to the Caribbean. Um, and when you have such a big telescope, we hope that we'll be able to actually resolve and actually see the different parts of the of those quasars of the galaxies there. And so hopefully we're able to s distinguish between where the black hole is sitting and what is happening in the, in the galaxy itself where the stars are forming. Is that difficult to do since the central part of the galaxy is, is so bright? A lot of radio energy is coming out from near this black hole. Does that blind your vision to the rest of the...? It, it blinds the vision if you're looking in the optical. For sure, and also if you're looking at at most other wavelengths in in the X-ray, where a lot of the energy is coming as well, it's very pronounced. Most of the X-ray emission will come from the central black hole. Uh, for most quasars, it's likely that the radio emission comes from the central black hole, 
But so this is why we're testing this on these type of quasars in which we know there's a lot of star formation activity going on because radio emission can also come from stars that have gone supernovae. And so if, if you have a lot of star formation going on, the very youngest of the, st- the most massive of the stars will go supernova really quick. And, and so while the starburst is still going on, we should be able to see the radio emission from the, these dead stars. Well, that's going to be fun. I hope so. I hope I, that I, works out. Yeah. That would be really interesting. Well, tell us a little bit about um, where you live and work. I, I did introduce you as being from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy, and that is in Germany, right? Yeah. I, actually, I have to correct you. It's not for radio. It's just for astronomy. For astronomy. Yeah. Um, so I'm working at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy, which is in Heidelberg. And there are four or five uh, Max Planck Institutes that do anything with astronomy around in Germany. Um, those are not related to the university. Those are research institutes. So is it the German equivalent, sort of, of an NRAO? Um, no, it's probably more, it would probably more be something like some of the, I guess, Institute for Technology or so. This is where NRAO actually provides a facility for us um, for doing, for example, radio observations. The Max Planck Institutes are the ones where most, they will still build instruments that will be related to telescopes, but their prime um, purpose is really to do research mm-hmm. and so to actually be utilizing some of all these great facilities that is provided around in the world. But I'm in Germany, but I did my studies in Copenhagen before, before that and also did my PhD in Leiden, which is in the Netherlands. So it's the thing I really like about astronomy is it's so international. You can you can travel to many places. How much longer are you going to be here in Green Bank with us? So I'll be here for almost another week. I'll be leaving on Tuesday. So. And you, your observing times have been late at night? Um, this morning it was really early. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I'm quite enjoying these days that some of my observing time is during the day, mm-hmm. which is the thing I really appreciate about radio astronomy. That's right. <laughs> yes. You don't have to wait for it to be clear and dark to do your work, exactly. unless that's when your object happens to be above the horizon and exactly. then you're unlucky exactly. anyway. You have quite a large team listed doing this research with you. Are you here carrying the the observing on your shoulders alone this time? No, this time I'm here first, but we have almost three weeks scheduled, and so there will be a graduate student from my group in Germany who will be coming out to do the rest of the observations. That's what graduate students are good for, right? They come out and finish. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your observing and your sleeping when you're not observing to to talk with us this morning, and good luck to you. I hope you collect great data and make fantastic discoveries. Thank you. All right.